0: Lavey Brankman here with Truth, Jewish Wisdom for today. This is the second episode of the fifth season of this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Before we begin, if you like this podcast, if you like the content, please like, subscribe wherever you see it, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. Leave a review. Thank you so much. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's jump into what we are. Discussing. In the last episode, we talked about what the issue is that we've reached today and the corrosive nature of some of the philosophies out there which cause this moral equivalency between terrorists on the one hand and moral liberal democracies on the other hand. Overall, this is a postmodern type philosophy that we're grappling with and. In the last episode, we discussed some of the corrosive natures of these types of ideas. Today, what I want to do is to give a little bit of historical context. Although I studied history in university at the graduate level, I don't consider myself a historian, but I do consider myself someone who has taken a very keen interest in history and has a sense of history. So this isn't going to be a deep historical overview. It's going to be a brief Introduction to what went before and where we are today. And I'm going to give it from a particularly Judaic perspective, as this is Jewish wisdom for today. Going all the way back a couple thousand years, if you like, you have Talmudic times, which were from about the third century to the eighth century. So that straddled this period of the Roman Empire to medieval times. And after that, you have the medieval period, which went from about the fifth century to the 14th century. Then you have the Renaissance which is about from the 14th to the 17th century. And then you have the age of the Enlightenment and the modern era after the 17th century. And in the modern era, you have the early modern period, which some people consider that still part of the 15th to 17th century. And then you have the 18th century, which is the Enlightenment. And then you have the later modern period, which is from the 19th and 20th century, And now, a lot of people consider us to be in the postmodern period. So that's just a brief overview of the different periods. And what is the difference between these periods? I'm going to take it from a Judaic perspective. So you find during the time of the Talmud, the rabbis had a lot of authority. And that was pretty typical of that medieval period, when the church had a lot of authority. And people had a question, they went to ask the rabbis, and the rabbis or the church basically ruled and made decisions. You did have the state, but the supreme body, if you like, during the medieval period was the church, and it was higher in authority, at least in the eyes of the people, to the state. So that characterized that period of time, and truth was spoken from the church, or truth was spoken from the rabbis from the religious authorities. And that's how you accessed truth at that time. And therefore, it makes perfect sense if you study the Talmud, which I do, you find a lot of acrobatics from an intellectual perspective and analysis of biblical text and trying to figure out how to decipher from the biblical text what the truth is of how people should behave. And that authority uh, came from these people, these rabbis who had the ability to study the biblical text and had the know-how and had the tools and understood the rules of how to properly analyze the biblical text to be able to decipher the correct actions and behaviors for the people in any given circumstance. In a nutshell, this could be described what the Talmud is. It is interpretation of biblical texts in order to enable people to be able to practice their religion. And The rabbis needed to do that because people needed to know how to act, and the way they know how to act is by asking the rabbis because in that period of time, the rabbis or the church, the religious authorities, reigned supreme during this period of time, the medieval period. People were also very superstitious, and people had a lot of fear of God during this period of time. I want to focus a little bit on what that meant in a practical sense for people. And again, the reason why I'm going through this is to put into perspective the ideologies that we have today in that historical context. A lot of who we are is how we got here and what we've been through. So to understand the corrosive nature of the ideologies which are believed in today, it's important to understand the nature of the ideologies that went before us. Getting back to the medieval period and the superstitious nature of it. So in that period of time, people believed that these people who had this authority was so powerful that these religious leaders were miracle performers and they had supernatural abilities. So there was a belief that some of these people were able to speak the languages of animals. They had a direct connection to the divine. These were God on earth in many ways and some religions believed more some religions believed less but certainly in the case of Judaism the rabbis were interpreting and channeling the divine will and they had abilities the other people just didn't have they were miracle workers they were able to ascend to higher realms and able to commune with god for example we've spoken about on this podcast Paradis, the four rabbis who went into the the orchards and they went and they were accessing divine knowledge. There are other stories in the Talmud of miracles which took place. One of the examples of this is when there was famines or the drought. So the people at the time believed that if you went to a miracle worker or the rabbi, the rabbi would be able to intercede and cause there to be rain. There's a famous story about this that is found in tractate Ta'anit. It talks about an individual. His name was Choyni Hamagel, which means Choyni, the circle drawer. And the reason why he was called this was because according to the Talmud in Tractate Tanit, when there was once a drought, they needed to pray for rain. And they asked Choyni if he would pray for rain. And Choyni, what he did was, is he drew a circle around himself and he stood in the middle of the circle and he told God, they would not move from the circle until it started to rain, and it only started to drizzle. So then Chani turned around and told God that he wasn't satisfied with a little bit of a drizzle, but he wanted a lot of rain, and that's when it began to pour. And it was a very large a downpouring, and Honey wasn't satisfied with that either, and he said to God he just wanted normal rain, and that's when it just started to rain normally. And there are various stories like this found in the Talmud. Another one is, for example... When Rabbi Chana, the son of Hanina, he decreed a fast because it didn't rain. There was a drought, but it didn't rain. It didn't work. So the people set him in and said, Rabbi Yishor Levi, he was able to do this. He decreed a fast and it started to rain. And he said, I am not equal in stature to Rabbi Yishor Levi. So they said to him, let us come and focus our minds. Perhaps the hearts of the community will break and rain will come. So what happened was they all prayed together for mercy And rain still did not come. So Rabbi Chama, the son of Chanina, said to them, are you content that rain should come on our account and through our merit? They said, yes. He looked up and he said, skies, skies, cover your face with clouds. It didn't work. And then he said, in a way of rebuke, he said, how impudent is the face of the sky so that it ignores me? And then the sky became covered in clouds and rain came. So, These are stories which are found of the miracle workers of the Talmud, and there are plenty of these stories. These are rabbis who had this ability to create miracles. This was, as I've mentioned multiple times, and invoking Charles Taylor, that this was a period of time when people were deeply enchanted. This was an enchanted time. People believed in ghosts, people believed in miracle workers, people believed in humans who had supernatural powers. This was that period of time. They also believed in witch doctors and that type of thing. So if you lived in that period of time and something went wrong, you wouldn't necessarily go to a doctor. You would go to a holy man. You would go to a a shaman. There's, for example, a story which is found in the Bible itself in Kings, which was much, much earlier than that, but similar type of mindset that you can imagine where... And it's the story of the prophet Elisha, and Elisha met this woman and she had lost her husband. I'm paraphrasing the story. Then she therefore had lost all her livelihood and debtors were coming to collect their debts and she had nothing. How is she going to pay them back? She was going to lose everything. So Elisha said to her, what do you have in your house? And she said, well, I just have one jug of oil. So he said to her, take all the jugs that you can find. Bring them to your house and start pouring from that one jug of oil into those jugs. And she kept pouring and pouring. And miraculously, this jug of oil, the small jug of oil, just kept pouring and pouring. It never finished. It was an unending source of oil, which filled all her jugs. And she sold the jugs and she was able to pay back her debts. And there are multiple stories like this of Alicia doing these miracles. Some child dies and he's able to bring the child back to life. He's able to give blessings and children are born. All these things happen because you have this authority figure who is the prophet, the rabbi, the holy man, the shaman, and these are the people who people in the community, just regular lay folk, turn to when they have an issue. And so was it people believed that there was something in spirit. I'll bring one more example of this, and that is from this week's Torah portion we're reading the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, it, the beginning it talks about the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, and how were they emancipated from that slavery? Through God, through the mighty and outstretched arm of God, which was enacted through Moses and Aaron, who went to the Pharaoh and said to the Pharaoh, let my people go, and if not, you are going to get these 10 plagues and the 10 plagues were then smitten upon the Egyptians, and eventually he lets the people go. But there's a small story in there, which I want to focus on just a little bit to bring out this idea, and that is that there is Moses and Aaron, they're standing in front of Pharaoh, and Aaron has a staff, a stick, and he throws it onto the ground, and it turns into a snake, and the magicians of the Pharaoh are also standing there, and they say, that's no big deal, we can do that as well. So they take their staffs, and they throw it on the ground, and they turn into snakes. So in order to show the one-upmanship of Aaron, Aaron's staff then, his snake, is able to eat all the other snakes, and then he picks up the snake, and it turns back into a staff. And then the plagues happen first. It's blood. It turns out that the sorcerers of Pharaoh are also able to do the same thing, and are able to create blood from water. And then there's frogs, and it turns out the same thing. The sorcerers are able to create lots of frogs as well. And then when it comes to the third plague, which is wrought upon the Egyptians through Moses and Aaron by God, the plague of lice, that they're not able to replicate. Only Moses and Aaron are able to do this. And when they try to create these lice, the sorcerers of the pharaoh are unable to do it and they say this must be the finger of God which is doing this because we can't, we don't have the power to do this. And the commentators get into describing what is the power that enables the sorcerers to do it versus the power of God and why is it that they're unable to use that power to create these lice. And some of it is because sorcery can't create things that small as lice. Other people say that it's because The life was created out of dust and only God can create something out of nothing. He can only create life, only God can, but sorcery can't do it. This whole discussion, though, presupposes and assumes a deeply enchanted world where people can harness these powers, whether it's the power of God or whether it's the power of sorcery, the power of purity and holiness or the power of impurity and sorcery, whatever it is, this is a world which is teeming with these ideas, a world which is deeply enchanted, which imagines that there are all these powers out there which can be harnessed in one way or another. And this is really the world which humans inhabited for thousands of years. And it worked because you had an authority. Sometimes that authority was kind. Other times that authority was brutal. But people didn't migrate a huge amount and people had these holy people who they would go to and the holy people often i assume were well-meaning they believed and bought into this entire system as well so that is up until the renaissance so that is the medieval period even in the pre-medieval period all the way up to the time of the renaissance this is what people believed this encompasses if we go back to what we discussed about the kabbalah This certainly encompasses the time of the Zohar. If you read the Zohar, you find a deeply enchanted work. It was clearly the product of this time, the product of a deeply enchanted mind or deeply enchanted minds. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that you had a book like the Zohar, which came out during that time period. The Zohar was a 13th century book. You get into the time of the Renaissance, which is now the 14th to 17th century, things start to change. During the Renaissance period, the state started to become more supreme to the church. So you had the kings and the other people who ran the governments, they started to take precedent over the church. And during that time period, you started to have literature, which was less religious and more less religion-based and was more secular in nature. And you started to have the printing press, which started to be used. A lot of information and knowledge started to be disseminated quite a bit around this period. And the other thing that started to happen during this period is as knowledge started to be spread, people started to think much more logically. Whereas previously you had people going to the holy man, more and more you had people turning to logic and people turning to philosophy during this period of time. And people started to really question authority during this period of time. So you had the time of the Renaissance, which was really the time of transition from that of a deeply enchanted world all the way to when you get to the time of the Enlightenment where really the world is coming out of its enchantment. So let's talk about now the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment really was the time of science. And this was a time when people started to really not just question authorities, but it was a time when people started to leave those authorities behind and started to much more rely on science to answer questions and logic and reasoning to answer these questions. So this was a time of reason. And religion more and more was losing its hold on the people during the time of the enlightenment. And you had in Judaism, you had people like Moses Mendelssohn, and others, people who started to really think differently about Judaism. You had, therefore, coming out of this was the Reform Movement and the Conservative Movements and other movements in the Judaism, which simply didn't exist prior. This was the modernization, if you like, or the Enlightenment meeting Judaism, where you're trying to bring reason into Judaism and the Wissenschaft der Studenstamm, the scientific study of Judaism was born. And a lot of that rejected, totally rejected the mystical ideas which came before it. So if you think about some of the scholars which started initially to study uh, mysticism at that time in the academy from a uh, academic perspective or from a scientific perspective, they rejected the Kabbalah in a big way. And they rejected the Zohar as a book which was the product of of the enchanted mind, and therefore not relevant in a world of science. So you have to see the people who studied the Kabbalah back then different than people who study the Kabbalah today, where you find there's a newfound respect for the Kabbalah. And we're going to get into why that is a little bit, so a little bit connecting our previous season with this season. But if you can understand the different eras and epochs that we're talking about, you can understand why a time like the Enlightenment, which was now totally and utterly embracing reason logic and specifically science and the scientific method of its ability to reach truth it rejects that which went before it because it says that we don't need that we are able to live a life and get truth and get facts without having any of that as a matter of fact the view of the enlightenment is that all of that medieval viewpoint That enchanted viewpoint that led us astray, it didn't progress us at all. And the Enlightenment together with the scientific method, that can really progress us. And in many ways, the Enlightenment is right. Because you see the progress that science made and the facts that science is able to progress medical science and is able to progress technology and brought us the boon that we have today in technology and in economics and uh, prosperity. This all came about as a result of the Enlightenment and in many ways as a result of liberal democracy together with capitalism. That was a product of the Enlightenment. So that brings us all the way up to the 19th century where the Enlightenment really took hold and people started to have less and less have use for religion during this time period. And there was a very strong reaction to this from religious people, because people who really valued religion wanted to make an argument for why religion is valuable. Unfortunately, the way they made the argument was not by saying that religion is good, but by trying to attack the scientific method. That's how they did it. They tried to attack the Enlightenment. So religious people saw the Enlightenment as a threat to religion. It wasn't an ally to religion. It was a threat to religion. And because of that, the way they dealt with that threat to religion was by attacking the Enlightenment. Now, there are always unintended consequences because the unintended consequences wasn't a rebirth of religion, but it was the creation of the next thing, which was postmodernism. And that, in my view, has the worst of all worlds. So to recap what we discussed today is we've gone through a very, very brief overview of the periods in history also trying to track it from a jewish perspective all the way from the time of the talmud and the roman period all the way up to the 19th century 20th century and we're not yet into the 21st century but all that time period where you had a deeply enchanted world where people believed in miracles and people believed in the holy man and then through the renaissance when people started to question the church started to question the holy man and you started to have logic and reason and the printing press and dissemination of knowledge. And then up to the modern period, what you might call the late modern period, and the enlightenment where science was really supreme and so was logic and reasoning. And that gave birth to the liberal democracy and capitalism that we have and Religion reacted very negatively to that because it saw it as a threat. Now, I wish it wouldn't have seen it as a threat, and I wish some of the people who were in the Enlightenment wouldn't have had such a negative reaction to the religion which went before it. But they did. And you can see that in the Judaic text, where the people who were writing during the Enlightenment period, they were so vociferous and so cynical to the religious ideas that went before it. And they so much wanted to reform everything and bring everything up to the standards of science. And they even called the, the, the Wissenschaft der the Judenstam, the scientific study of Judaism, they were bringing science into Judaism and trying to reject everything which went before it instead of to synthesize in any kind of way. I wish they wouldn't have done that, but they did. And because of that, religion totally discredited science and totally discredited the enlightenment. And the results of that is postmodernism. The results of that isn't something positive. The results of that was something negative, in my opinion. And so it's important to have that historical context of how we got here. There is enough blame to go around to everyone of how we ended up with such a corrosive ideology, which has taken hold across the world today, which has led to this moral relativism between an evil ideology and an evil group of people, or terrorists and A liberal democratic state which is looking out for the benefit of the people and the benefit of humanity that is a corrosive ideology, which we'll get into next episode to show how the reaction that religion had, and specifically certain scholars and philosophers who were trying to protect religion, and the way they did that was to attack the Enlightenment, how that led eventually to the postmodernism that we have today. And then eventually, we'll discuss about how we can think of a new way of thinking about all of this. But meanwhile, this has been Levi Brackman with Truths, Jewish Wisdom. I hope that this in some way has been helpful in seeing and understanding the world we live in today from this historical context. Please stay with me as we go through these ideas and eventually we get to some kind of conclusion. Thank you so much for joining again and until next time.